Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of July 20th, 2021, and episode number 485. And this is your host, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at paranormalking.com. And uh, welcome everybody in the chat room for another exciting episode. Uh, tonight, we've got a lot of UFO stuff. I know everybody... Loves that UFO stuff. Um, tons of, of news. Everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. You thought that after the disappointing UAP report that things would kind of just uh, settle to the bottom of the ocean floor. And we would just move on to the next big thing. But uh, it continues to stir the pot. Uh, people are arguing about everything and bringing up a lot of uh, interesting points, which we'll talk about a lot of that tonight. And uh, a release of some kind of some new information. Uh, we have some uh, information about the classified version of this UAP report that we'll talk about toward the end of the show. I'm not going to just uh, blurt that out now. That's not, uh, that's not how you do things. Uh, i got to tease you guys to keep you here. For the full 60 minutes. And uh, tonight, that out. we've got uh, a little bit of uh, cryptid news that we'll kick off here. Uh, looking at the events page quickly, I don't really see a whole lot. Got a lot. Actually, there's uh, quite a few coming up this weekend. Uh, it seems like July is the new May. Uh, of course, uh, things got to a, a late start as far as paranormal conferences and conventions are concerned because of uh, the obvious concern of COVID-19, but it uh, looks like things are ramping up, although, you know, there's a little concern about the uh, different things happening with the COVID-19. Again, here we go. Uh, but uh, so far, it seems like these events should go off. But again, like I've said uh, for the last year and a half now, uh, be sure to know what the, uh, the process is for getting your money back and uh, cancellation what's going to happen to your money and some of these events uh, are getting a little weird about that where they're just saying, well, we're not going to cancel. We're going to delay it for a year or six months. So they're going to hold on to your money uh, like a ransom. But uh, yeah, be careful. If you're going to go to these events, make sure everything is uh, good. I mean, I don't think I would be making any plans for four or five months from now, to be honest. Um, just to be on the safe side with, with everything that's going on. We just, we got to get together, planet Earth. We just got to uh, take care of ourselves. Follow, you know, healthy guidelines. Uh, listen to scientists. They're not out to put chips in here or dead DNA or whatever people are talking about nowadays. But anyway, uh, yeah, cryptid news this week. We got, uh, we'll kick it off. We'll just kick it off. But anyway, uh, to finish talking about what I was talking about. Events. Uh, Paranewsinsider.com and you can click on the events tab at the top. I know, uh, I think I'm, I'm missing one or two that are this weekend. Kind of drive me crazy. I can't remember what they were. Um, I don't have a whole lot on there, but 
yeah, we'll see how the events go. If we start getting cancellations and things like that, it's gonna it's gonna get really ugly. Um, but I have a feeling that we're gonna start seeing some of that in some states here in the U.S. Uh, pretty soon. Um, but uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. Anyway, moving forward, cryptid news. Uh, so tonight's first story. I'm gonna kind of go out on a limb a little bit. Um, I'm gonna assume that you, the listener, enjoy listening to podcasts. Well, that's, of course, because you're listening to this one. Uh, Also, take a leap and assume that you also like cryptids because, again, you're listening to this show, and this is uh, the cryptid news segment of the Paranormal News Insider. And uh, I kind of stumbled on a story from Arizona, and uh, it's from azcentral.com, which gotten quite a few stories from them. Over the years, and they shared a podcast called Valley 101. It's uh, kind of a a local uh, Phoenix area podcast. They talk about, you know, different things going on in the area. And it's uh, made uh, possible by the Arizona Republic newspaper and azcentral.com. Again, talking about local topics to the Phoenix, Arizona area, which is kind of cool. It's the last place I've traveled to. Uh, since the COVID pandemic, and that was back in January, late January of last year, and that's when I started noticing people wearing masks at airports. It started making me a little nervous, uh, but of course, a couple of months later, we're all pretty much wearing masks. Um, well, their latest podcast topic is on a Bigfoot-like creature that purportedly lives in the area. Uh, Like many types of Bigfoot, this one has its own local name. Uh, It seems like uh, every region, uh, states have multiple types. Uh, Here in Ohio, we have, gosh, I think five or six different local names for for Bigfoot, uh, Grassman being the uh, pretty much the big one. Uh, But out in Arizona, they have uh, the local name is known as the Mogion monster. Uh, I've never heard of that before, so it's kind of cool to hear new monsters, uh, new creatures, even if it's just a a flavor of Bigfoot, pretty much. Not that we're going to eat Bigfoot. Probably tastes like chicken anyway. Uh, But a a local version of Bigfoot. It's always cool to hear one of these, because every time you think um, you you hear all these names, uh, a new one pops up, which is pretty cool. Uh, Usually hear new ones from uh, different countries, but to hear one in Arizona. Yeah, Arizona is pretty much known for the 1997 Phoenix Lights incident, as well as uh, subsequent ones uh, about 10 years later. They had a, a few, but pretty much all explainable, except for one, of course, 97. The giant shadow that went over the the city. Yeah, the lights, they explain, but not the giant UFO that went over that nobody talks about now. Um, but back to this podcast about the Mogion monster. Uh, the uh, podcast is pretty short, but it's pretty entertaining. It's got some good um, good production value, I guess. It's uh, spliced together some interviews, a little bit of music, and uh, you know the uh, really cool uh, background sounds that I used to do when I pre-recorded my segment here on this show. Um, 
and I was really happy too. I, I actually went to the transcript. It was a little easier. Uh, I was listening to music at the time. I guess that's the excuse. Um, but I went to, they had a transcript. So I was just reading it and I saw a familiar name. So then I had to stop uh, listening to uh, my Sirius XM and go to, uh, gee, plug there. I didn't, didn't get paid. They should pay me for that. Um, you know, at least reimburse me a couple bucks. Uh, a familiar name, Dr. Doug Kelly. So I had to uh, go listen to the the podcast, uh, which, again, it was uh, very surprised. It was very good production value on it. So Dr. Doug Kelly, uh, a mentor of mine who created the Paranexus Anomalous Research Organization. Uh, he now heads the International Church of Metaphysical Humanism. He also operates Thomas Francis University, uh, as well as the Institute of Metaphysical Humanistic Science, and the latter of which is uh, where I got my bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D., the fancy letters at the end of my name. Uh, Doug explains what cryptozoology is and the overview of what he teaches his students. Uh, so, you know, basic podcast, never talked about cryptozoology before. Uh, I think Doug is a, a fantastic person to explain cryptozoology and uh, uh, also included in the podcast are Dr. Sarah Burdoff, who researches folklore and mythology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, she kind of talks about the, obviously, the mythological piece to kind of balance things out a little bit. And uh, another name I was, I don't know if I was surprised to see it, but uh, haven't heard this name in quite a while. I usually don't, usually don't mention this person's name on the show because of the hijinks involved, but I think it's a, a very well-balanced addition to this podcast. Uh, Tom Biscardi, the CEO and founder of searchingforbigfoot.com, was the third and final guest on the show. Again, not the most reliable fellow in cryptozoology, but a long-standing member of Bigfoot. He's been around a long time. Um, and again, a good representation to include in the podcast to help provide a balance between the uh, the other two guests. Uh, apparently, Biscardi and company have uh, investigated the Mogollon monster uh, a few times and collected a number of reports in the area. So he was the person they reached out to to uh, provide a little bit of background. Uh, and so snippets of his interview are intermittent in the podcast. Uh, you can find the Valley 101 podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and Stitcher for starters, just like this show, the Paranormal News Insider. Uh, you can also learn more about the uh, IMHS Metaphysics Institute at metaphysicsinstitute.org, uh, as well as Thomas Francis University at tfuniversity.org. And these are great organizations to get a solid understanding of anything paranormal and metaphysical. I highly recommend uh, those two if you're looking to uh, get an education. And it's not like your certification courses where, you know, uh, Joe Ghost Hunting Group decides they want to charge money and teach you things that you can readily get off the Internet. Um, very uh, in-depth organization uh, for those two uh, institutions. What else do we got here? Well, you know what? Let me. Uh, well, I didn't didn't save the link for that. That's not good. Uh, we're gonna move on to Scotland and what happens in Scotland. 
in cryptozoology, none other than, of course, the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, this story isn't really about the Loch Ness Monster, but uh, a person behind it, Steve Feltham, who was seven years old back in the 1970s, visited the highlands of Scotland and learned uh, about the Loch Ness Monster. He uh, saw the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, which is an organization started in 1962 to search for the Loch Ness Monster. They spent 10 years searching for the creature and, and shut their doors in uh, 72. Uh, Steve, from that experience, I was amazed that grown men were looking for this creature, and he figured this is something that he wanted to do, uh, but it would take uh, many years for him to, uh, after that feeling, to uh, change the course of his life. Uh, I wish I knew what I was going to do when I was seven. I don't know. Couldn't figure it out. Still can't figure it out. Uh, Forty years after that. Uh, at age 28, he was working with his father, selling burglar alarms. Uh, he also had a house and a girlfriend, but he suddenly left it all behind and drove to Loch Ness in a 20-year-old library van. Uh, that was back on July 18, 1991, just over 30 years ago. Gosh, that was 30 years ago. Uh, he now lives in the Doras Inn car park near a beach on the lock. Uh, he sells miniature Nessie models made of modeling clay to make money to continue to live his life his way. Uh, living the last 30 years of his life looking for the Loch Ness Monster, Steve says, quote, I'm not trying to show the world, here's the final proof that solves the mystery. I'm addicted to the chase. I'm addicted to finding the new pieces of evidence. That's what keeps me going, that adventure, unquote. Uh, he doesn't regret a minute of interacting with the public and searching for the elusive creature. And he says, quote, from the day I arrived, I've never regretted a single thing. When I do reach my deathbed, I don't want to say I wish I tried to do this. I'd hate that regret for more than trying and failing. If you don't follow your dreams, the only person who loses is you. Unquote. Um, I mean, that's, that's a nice story. I, I feel like maybe there's some other things you could have done, but... Uh, it's, maybe it's not about, you know, and I've talked about this before on the show. It's The Loch Ness Monster isn't about actually finding the Loch Ness Monster and hauling it on the beach and uh, taking pictures and putting it on the front page of a newspaper. And uh, it, It's not about that. It's not about actually finding it. I think it's more of the search. It's the belief behind the creature more so than a flesh and blood monster. And he's living that dream. And it would be sad if they, you know, the, the lock drained one day and there was no monster there or even maybe even worse if they did find it. And, you know, people hunted it and did whatever and it's gone. Uh, the dream of it uh, being there, I think, is bigger than actually finding it. And, you know, if that gives you purpose in life, then uh, that's fantastic. And to, to be able to live your life, uh, you don't matter if it's selling figurines and and not really having a whole lot of money to do anything else. As long as you're happy, you know, I can't, I can't say anything about that. I, I can't, uh, can't tell him he's wrong. Um, but as long as he's, you know, happy and doing what he wants to do and living his life his way, I'd say that's pretty fantastic. Um, 
guess that's all I got on that. I don't know what else to say. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty good, pretty good uh, story. I think you know he, he does make the news every now and again. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's kind of a cast of characters around the Loch Ness monster, and sightings. Seems like a lot of people are fighting over popularity with it, but uh, he's living in life. He's out there all the time. He's looking constantly. He's talking to people who uh, visit. And he's uh, one of the people that I'd love to uh, to meet up with uh, if I ever am able to get out there to uh, to look at Loch Ness and to talk to him uh, about his his uh, his sightings and uh, especially the people that he's come across. So everybody comes to him with evidence and uh, reading about how he lets people down sometimes and how he has to you know let people know that certain things happen on the Loch that other people think are uh, anomalous creatures. You know, interests me that he he's uh, an observer, and he knows uh, some of the strange things that that occur that are actually normal to Loch Ness that may seem strange to visitors. And uh, he sees a lot of evidence, probably more so than anybody else, because he's down there uh, at the water's edge. Anyway, I guess happy anniversary to uh, Steve for uh, being there for thirty years. It's crazy. Yeah, you should do a lot of fishing, I would think. Anyway, to UFO news, a lot of UFO news this week. Uh, not a whole lot of ga- uh, ground gained on anything, but uh, it's really good to see, uh, like I said at the top of the show, a continuation of discussion about this UAP report, even though it was uh, pretty anticlimactic. You know, we're all really excited about that, thinking it's going to change the world and all this information is going to come out and We'll find out all the answers to the universe and everything that the government has hidden underground. But alas, nothing. Uh, but the uh, that reveal the, the UAP report still lingering out there and leaving a lot of people to wonder what else is out there. The other videos, other stories, you know, what about all these, you know, hundreds of other things that we haven't heard yet? We've only heard of maybe a dozen of these things. So what's what else is there? And are we going to see some new evidence? Are we going to hear some new stories? Is there more photographs, more videos? What's coming up? What's coming out? And, uh, you know, like I predicted, uh, we'll get uh, a little release maybe every month or two months or something, some mundane video. And hopefully we'll start getting some new stuff pop up. Um, But, uh, you know, hopefully with that, Hopefully something more magnificent uh, may entice officials to appear closer to the UAP and UFO issues. But uh, we're going to have to kind of wait and see on that. But uh, Gizmodo, the website Gizmodo, recently published a story uh, that takes a cold, hard look at the videos that have already been released. And they ask, quote, what do the UFO videos really show? Unquote. And that's actually the title of the article. What do the UFO videos really show? And that excites me because uh, it seems uh, far too often, you know, we were talking about the UAP of any videos or the report in general. Uh, it's, it's always focused on UFOs, alien uh, guided craft. And Nobody's really talking about what's actually in the video other than saying that, wow, these defy physics or, wow, these are unexplainable. The government doesn't know what they are. They have to be UFOs. Um, 
but nobody's really looking at or disseminating these. Things. I should say nobody, but uh, some of the people that we're going to talk about here have. And uh, the general public, uh, some people have torn these things apart and demonstrated what they are and provided validation. And this article from Gizmodo, they ask seven people from varying backgrounds, a lot of uh, scientists, physicists, astronomers, and a couple of skeptics, um, what their opinion is on what's going on in the videos that have been released and confirmed by the U.S. government. Uh, Avi Loeb, professor of astronomy at Harvard University and author of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, uh, says, quote, it is possible and likely that most of the past reports on UFOs from the general public can be explained by human-made or natural phenomena or as illusions, but we need to pay special attention to the small number of reports where the evidence is strong and undisputable. The key is to collect more evidence with our best recording devices. It would be prudent to progress forward with our finest instruments rather than examine past reports. Instead of declassifying documents that reflect decades-old technologies used by witnesses with no scientific expertise, it would be far better to deploy state-of-the-art recording devices such as cameras installed on wide-field telescopes or audio sensors at the sites where these reports came from and search for unusual signals, unquote. So kind of a, a different take there. Uh, on what we're seeing, who cares about stuff that comes out? You know, people spend hundreds of hours and dollars on freedom of information reports to get something that happened in the 1980s or 90s. Uh, but big deal. Now that happened. There's really nothing we can do. We can't figure that out now. It's it's old stuff, uh, as we've seen with uh, different different stories such as Roswell. People kind of create their own backstory uh, to be a part of the story. So how much can we trust historical representations of these cases? So, you know, what can we do moving forward? I think that's a, a very intelligent viewpoint. Uh, we know we've seen strange things. We've Here's where we're seeing them. Uh, what can we do to move forward uh, more intelligently? Uh, Jack Singal, Associate Professor of Physics, University of Richmond uh, bases his statement in this article on the thought that many of the videos could be deceptively edited. Uh, he also feels that the Earth is a strange place, no kidding, and can cause some strange things to happen. And he says, quote, just because something in the sky is strange doesn't mean it's from another planet, unquote. Uh, that's something that I've echoed uh, throughout the years, especially in the ghost field. Uh, telling people that just because you can't explain it doesn't mean it's unexplainable. It just means that you can't explain it uh, right now. Maybe later on or more evidence or more information, more data, you can explain what happened. Uh, and sometimes we get caught up in the moment, especially when you're you know, all wearing your matching black shirts out in the, in the dark with your flashlights and you're running around. Uh, every noise is a ghost, whether it's a bat or a rat. Uh, landing in your hair or running through your, your feet. Um, but if those things happen anywhere else, it's easily explainable. But when it happens in a purportedly haunted place, your mind is altered. And I think the same thing happens 
when uh, we're searching YouTube for UFO videos and we see these things or somebody says it was a UFO, uh, our minds are disengaged from reality sometimes. And it's just something that we engage in. As far as him saying that the videos could be deceptively edited, so I've seen this before. I've seen uh, amateur video where people will uh, slow things down or speed things up or change uh, some things just to make it seem uh, bigger or moving quicker or doing different things that it, it shouldn't be doing. And, and possibly that's something that uh, some of these witnesses have done and could have even deceived the government with that. Who, who knows? Uh, the technology that we have nowadays, I remember probably 10 years ago, I, I made a statement that I said that uh, a kid, an eight-year-old kid can produce uh, movie quality videos that would rival movies that came out 10 years ago or less. And that was, again, I said that 10 years ago. So who knows uh, what kids can do now would uh, blow stuff out of the water still probably from 10 years ago. I uh, would have been, you know, high science fiction type stuff. But you know, the the technology we have with videos is uh, absolutely insane. But... Uh, there, the good thing with that, though, is there's also ways of learning about deception used in these, but it's sometimes it's really, really difficult to uh, separate that, unfortunately. So we do have to question these videos. We do have to question these photos when we do see them because of that technology. Unfortunately, we can't take things at, at face values. And that's, you know, the unfortunate part of technology. Now, Brian Dunning executive director of Skeptoid Media, takes a hard jab at the videos by stating that they displayed so far have uh, explanations that are being ignored by the media and public. And he says, quote, we're frustrated because nobody wants to report the truthful, sober version of this. Only the sensational view that there's some alien mystery afoot. It's bad journalism and it's harmful to the public intellect. Unquote. Um, I couldn't agree with more. And that's my frustration. We're not talking about potential technology, potential droids. Uh, was it last week? Not droids, drones. Was it last week? I ended the show about uh, a mysterious drone that uh, was flying around a helicopter and took off. It was known to be a drone, uh, but it displayed the ability to last a lot longer, go a lot faster and higher than what a drone should be able to go. Uh, there's a lot of advancements in remote control technology that uh, people are not really understanding. And people are, are building things that uh, could potentially be dangerous. And not only domestically, you know, that's a threat that people are creating technology to spy on the government. Uh, but also foreign adversaries. What if these are, you know, technology that's beyond what we can do, but our foreign adversaries uh, have these this technology? Why are we not talking about that? We're only talking about UFOs, which is the intention of relating it to aliens. So uh, it seems like every newspaper is doing that because it sells advertising space, you know, Unfortunately, the media doesn't really care about reporting the truth as much as they do making money about reporting what they think people are going to click on. 
or tune in at uh, 11 o'clock at night and be scared out of their minds. Um, they operate by fear, by misunderstanding, by angering people, getting people upset. That's unfortunately how journalism works in the world. Uh, it's not really about telling you what's going on. It's, it's a business anymore. It's no longer something that should be reporting the truth to balance the government, uh, inform the people. It's about selling cars, unfortunately. Uh, just like TV shows, uh, don't trust anything you see on TV. It's it's all geared toward making money. Anyway, let me get off my soapbox. Whoa, one foot at a time. I don't want to fall. Uh, Mick West, science writer, skeptical investigator, and author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. It's kind of a long, it's a long name for a book. Um, He's been one of the most vocal skeptics on this topic. Uh, he's uh, produced a lot of YouTube videos, and he's got a lot of uh, attention from the media about his uh, disseminating of these videos. He's pretty much you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel for all this stuff that uh, everyone's kind of ignoring. He's bringing the facts to the, to the surface. Uh, he echoes the uh, fallibility of the videos and explains – how the gimbal, go fast, tic tac, and green pyramid videos all have information within them that demonstrate that they're not what many believe they are to be. And, you know, he's demonstrated, he's shown evidence, and a lot of people just sidestep it. They just, just want to believe that they're UFOs. They don't want to be bothered by science or bothered by facts or information. Don't ruin the dream. And uh, luckily, lately, it seems like. News outlets are starting to embrace this, uh, such as this Gizmodo uh, article that we're talking about. They've kind of embraced uh, what's going on kind of in reality. And I think people are realizing that these videos aren't what they seem. And it begs the question, you know, how many more of these 144, I guess 143, since one of them was actually explained, uh, how many of these actually have explanations? And why is the government not doing the work that people like Mick West are doing to disseminate these videos and, and point out some of the inaccuracies or the uh, the things that are going on with the videos? And uh, it seems the general consensus – I'm not going to go through every single person, but the general consensus of those interviewed in the article – they feel there isn't enough in these videos to warrant belief in aliens and that more needs to be done to be on the offense of these reports rather than arguing about beliefs about them, which I totally agree with. Uh, the focus from the media and most of the general public has been on the UFO angle, again, meaning that the videos and stories are proof of aliens invading Earth. And they've largely ignored the possibility that these could be technology in use from foreign adversaries or even domestic attempts, again, to spy on our own military. Uh, even more largely ignored is the possibility that the videos and experiences are mostly misinterpretations of events that actually have logical explanations. And that, to me, is uh, – I don't know. I, I kind of go back and forth, but – you know, when I'm reading all these stories today and yesterday and over the weekend, it seems to me it's more scary because people are talking about going after these things or shooting them out of the sky. <clears throat> and I think that's uh, careless and dangerous because if we're shooting a video 
and we think we see something or we're following something, but it ends up being the exhaust of a commercial jet miles away that we've misinterpreted the distance from, and we engage rockets and shoot something down. That's when things go bad, and that's when uh, that's when people get hurt, literally uh, get killed over misinterpretation of things. I mean, granted, that's the extreme, but we really have to take a cold, hard look at our technology. Uh, I know a lot of the uh, the, the uh, early stuff that was released, most of the stuff is uh, FLIR or infrared type uh, technology. And like I've said, a lot of the videos are were recorded by people who didn't know what they were doing or using that technology for the first time. So I think we need some people that know how to do these things. And, you know, like I said last week, where is the effort to investigate? You know, other than that one event that I just mentioned uh, was determined to be a balloon, where's the effort to determine the root cause of any of these other events other than just labeling them as anomalous, saying, well, you know, this thing, uh, this thing was going too fast or moving too, too uh, quickly. It, breaks the laws of physics but does it you know who did anybody really look into it other than just uh, you know making things up and saying it was moving 12,000 miles an hour and this and that do we really look at it or we just believe what we what we see and and uh make assumptions so i think you know thinking about this over the weekend, I thought, you know, what they really need is an evidence review board of some type. And I could tell you, you know, I mentioned uh, Dr. Doug Kelly earlier in the show uh, with the uh, Paranexus Anomalous Research Organization. And we used to have a, an anomalous evidence advisory board where, as a group, we would get a video or a photo submitted by somebody. And I've been doing that for years on my own. And sometimes I'd reach out to other people and say, hey, you know, here's this piece of evidence, uh, this data or video or audio or whatever it is. You know, what is your take on this? I have kind of an idea, but I want to see what you have to say. And that's uh, having an, an advisory board. You know, we're all able to disseminate it. We're all able to look at it from our varying aspects of, of expertise and kind of break down the evidence and, and try to find uh, some sort of conclusion or if there is a logical explanation for it before we just label it uh, anomalous. It's uh, it's important to do. And there's a lot of times there's things that I didn't see that uh, or hear that other people did and vice versa. But working as a group is far more efficient than just throwing something out to the public and, and allowing the media to determine what it is. Uh, so, again, what, I think what we need is an evidence review board of some type that includes people from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, my take is, uh, you know, aviation experts, FLIR camera designers, uh, video experts, special effects experts, uh, and especially astronomers, physicists, uh, people involved in science, uh, a variety of scientific uh, arenas. And create something of a, a grading scale or a method of categorizing these sightings to help unravel them from each other instead of just throwing them all into a pile and saying, well, here we have 144 anomalous events. Well, which ones you know, have actual radar data or multiple, uh, multiple systems that can uh, 
you know, grade that versus some that are just some guy on the deck of a ship, uh, you know, probably was at the mess hall drinking or whatever, just filming his own thing. You know, how many were filmed by pilots? Not that pilots are perfect observers. You know, they're they're trained to observe uh, aircraft and uh, and things like that, but they're not trained to see balloons or other objects in the sky. That can fool any pilot. You know, we've talked about stories like that for however long I've been on the show. It's uh, it's a common th- common thread that uh, we've seen that just because a pilot is a pilot, you know, a trained uh, person to observe other aircraft doesn't mean that they're trained to observe uh, other objects that they're not. Um, they're not used to seeing. And the good news is that uh, it's weird because I had this thought and, you know, I kind of wrote all that out and said, gosh, you know, we need this uh, evidence review board. Well, the good news is that uh, Avril Haynes, the director of national intelligence, uh, is actually is actually doing this um, there. Uh, she's looking at uh, adding scientific examination and coupling that with intelligence gathering. Uh, to tackle subjects uh, such as the Havana syndrome, which is still on the news uh, as of today, and uh, or origins of COVID-19, people still think that this escaped some kind of lab. That's that's a good book, um, but it's probably not the reality, uh, as well as this UAP situation. So, bringing in people from varying backgrounds to solve mysteries, and uh, so far it's kind of worked with the Havana syndrome. Uh, so we'll see what it does for the UAP situation. And hopefully, again, that'll keep them out on the offensive instead of on the defensive. And, and you know, we still need to gather reports. I think that's an, an important thing to do because we, we're going to have to learn from what we've seen or experienced. You know, if if it's a camera thing like the the bouquet of the, the triangles in the sky, which is something that I've seen for years uh, it's a kind of a trick that a lot of UFO people have been putting on YouTube for years, just claiming that there's they're seeing triangles high up in the atmosphere, but it's really just a camera effect. Uh, and I'm sure that they all know that they're just, uh, you know, it's about money. It's about uh, funding. It's about getting people to believe in your beliefs, selling a book or three uh, as well. Um so, yeah, the collective of 144 cases, it doesn't validate anything. People throw that number around and say, well, that, that's only what they've seen in the last few years. And what about all the other cases? This has to prove something. Um, but, you know, especially if 142 of them have at least a partial explanation to them, it throws all that out the window. But again, if we can separate these into kind of a degree some have a heavier weight scale or heavier weight on the scale, then we can look at those and kind of toss the other ones to the side uh, for the moment, especially if we have a pretty good idea that they're explainable. What's the point in talking about them? Uh, What we need to be doing is focusing on those events that defy explanation and create ways of making sure the next time it happens, there's a way to gather data to be able to get to the root cause. Uh, and none of these are ever the same. It seems like there are always different craft or different things that happen. Uh, but I think the Navy is poised uh, to be able to be the organization uh, 
that can, uh, you know, make this uh, make this a reality and able to be uh, again on the offensive versus the defensive aspect of researching these claims. Because um, I mean, this isn't cutting it. You know, here we are again. You know, those of us that uh, have been in the UFO field for a long time remember hearing all these things and reading all these things. You know, the 80s, it was the same <clears throat> the same deal where, hey, here's a bunch of reports. And that doesn't add up to much. And then that led to uh, a lot of groups uh, shutting down. You know, the Condon report uh, coming out and saying, well, you know, there's really no scientific value to any of this. So they shut down everything and moved on. Well, purportedly, uh, here we go again. And it makes you wonder, you know, what is the root cause of, of all this? And, you know, where's the end? Where's the end? <clears throat> so in the last story that I mentioned, uh, Avi Loeb, the best-selling author of Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth, as well as the former chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University, also founding director at Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysicists. I'm sorry, astrophysics. Uh, too many physics here. He also chairs the board on physics and astronomy, of the National Academies and the Advisory Board for the Breakthrough Starshot Project and is a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Uh, Loeb is a frequent author of articles in Smithsonian, sorry, Scientific American. I'll stop reading other things when I'm trying to do this show. Uh, Scientific American. And last week he published an article titled how to tell if extraterrestrial visitors are friend or foe. And that definitely got my attention. You know, how do we know we have extraterrestrial visitors? Uh, but the article identifies a few of the major issues with interstellar travel. And it's something, uh, it's a fun topic for me to talk about. And I know, uh, gosh, who's that author? It's going to drive me crazy now. I'm trying to think. Um, Antonio Perez. Perez, um, boy, that's gonna drive me crazy. Oh, Paris, I'm sorry, Antonio Paris. Uh, really, really excellent book on that. Uh, it's called Space Science, I believe. Uh, so yeah, Space Science. He wrote a book, and there's a lot of this debate about interstellar travel. How does a spaceship uh, like that move through space? How does it? Uh, get away from gravitational pulls? How does it get away from the radioactivity? Uh, how does it propel itself? And not only that, how does it stop? Because if you have fuel to push yourself forward, you got to have fuel to stop yourself. Now, once you get going, you're going through space, uh, but you got to stop somehow. You got to find a way to stop, which is a, the major problem with uh, interstellar travel. You know, you can talk about wormholes and all these other things. You know, maybe they can uh, leap time and space. But, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of a lot of problems with this. And, and this article only covers a few of the topics. But, 
one of my favorite topics to to kind of debate people with. Now, one being obviously the vast distances. Uh, it would take hundreds of generations and thousands of years would be needed to travel to nearby objects, uh, even going the speed of light, let alone tra traversing to distant galaxies. So think about that. Uh, you know, several generations being born and dying on the spacecraft just to be able to get that far. You know, granted, maybe, maybe you've got... Uh, uh, creatures that can live, obviously, we're pretty limited, 70 years. Uh, I guess when you when you kind of think about it, it's probably pretty average. If you took every organism and animal on the planet and you kind of averaged things out, 70 years is probably, probably right there in the middle. It's probably average. I mean, you have flies that only last a day or two. Uh, some... Smaller bacteria and viruses last anywhere from 30 seconds to thousands of years. You know, and, you know, most big animals don't really live more than 50 to 70 years. So, you know, I guess we're right there in the middle. But we're talking about Earth. And we're talking about the uh, planet that we're uh, currently rocketing through space in. You know, we have a certain distance from a specific type of star. We have a certain chemical makeup. The composition of the atmosphere, uh, you know, the planet that we're sitting on, uh, the life that's uh, currently existing on the planet has helped create what we are. So we're basically a reflection of the environment that we're able to to live on. So if a, another planet is different, the creatures aren't going to evolve the same as what we are. You know, we seem to you have all these alien movies where all the aliens look like people, or maybe they're just you know purple or blue. Or green or whatever, uh, but they still like human-like. Two arms, two legs. It's probably not going to be the way things happen, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, the distance involved is uh, one of the biggest problems, you know. And I'll add the frailty of complex organisms like ourselves. I mean, even a few months in space causes physiological issues that can limit our ability to function normally. You know, some. Astronauts have a hard time getting around for a while. And if they're up there a long time, like the International Space Station, you know, muscle atrophy happens. You know, granted, you could probably create false uh, false gravity on a ship. You know, we've seen a lot of movies with that. It's funny, you know, you watch Star Wars and stuff, and they just jump in a ship and they go into space and they're just walking around like normal. How's that happen? We won't even get in into the... Uh, the uh, Star Wars sequels where the ships run out of uh, fuel and they just stall in space. That's just ridiculous. That's not how it works, by the way. Uh, so, yeah, the frailty of human life. Uh, so, a flesh and blood travel uh, doesn't make sense. You know, sticking us in a spaceship and launching us into space, eh, it's probably not the right thing to do. So, what do we do? And what have we done historically? So, obviously... Uh, the first few things that we've launched into space, you can go back to Sputnik. You know, we launched machines around the, the Earth. We launched machines to the moon. We launched machines to, to Mars and other planets. We've got, uh, we've got machines out in space right now that have, uh, are leaving, they're leaving the uh, solar system, headed out into the, the galaxy and other parts. Um, so we're getting there, but we're using technology. We're using uh, machinery 
to do all this. We're not doing it ourselves. You know, granted, Russia launched monkeys and dogs and stuff, but that's just to see what would happen if we went up there. That's all political. Putting people in the space is about politics, not about science, really. Um, so, yeah, we typically send machines out there first to basically do the dirty work, and they can last longer than we can. We send probes out there, little little uh, machines that are rolling around Mars in, in our absence because uh, we'd have a hard time living on Mars, to be honest with you. Uh, we're, we're pretty weak. So that all being said, Loeb suggests it's more than likely – and it makes a lot of sense that uh, other creatures, other intelligent, whatever they are, you know, if they're bipedal or they're a blob, whatever they happen to be, that they're also using machinery. And more than likely, if they're intelligent, uh, probably more intelligent than we are, hopefully that would be the case. Uh, they're using artificial intelligence and they probably survive travel by self-repairing itself and able to quickly multiply to build new uh, robots if they're damaged uh, through time or, or whatever to preserve itself. And these would be the first candidates that would represent intelligent life that we come across. And it's possible. And uh, I agree that if UAPs are not from Earth, they're more than likely just probes that if piloted at all would be artificial in makeup. Uh, could be artificial flesh and blood creatures that are just... Uh, you know, operating on some sort of intelligent, um, artificial intelligence, or, you know, we, we would think of like machines, like robots, like the Terminator, uh, something like that. That's our assumption, like R2D2 or C3PO. Uh, but probably they could just be stitched together, well, I guess, robots like uh, the Terminator, which looks like flesh and blood, but really a machine underneath. I think that's kind of a, uh, kind of the thought process there. Um, well, Loeb examines what we should do if we encounter such technology. Like, how would we do that? How would we get along with artificial intelligence? Well, I'm going to quote a good chunk of this, but I think it's important. And I think it's fantastic, and it's uh, really good logical thinking. So Loeb says, quote, initial impressions can be misleading. As in the story of the Trojan horse used by the Greeks to enter the city of Troy and win the Trojan War. Therefore, we should first study the behavior of alien probes to figure out what type of data they're seeking. Second, we should examine how they respond to our actions. Now, with no choice left, we should engage their attention in a way that would promote our interests. Uh, but most importantly, humanity should avoid sending mixed messages to these probes because that would confuse our interpretation of their response. Any decision on how to act must be coordinated by an international organization such as the United Nations and policed consistently by all governments on Earth. In particular, it would be prudent to appoint a forum composed of our most accomplished experts in the areas of computing to interpret the meaning of any signal we intercept, uh, physics to understand the physical characteristics of the system in which we interact, and strategy to coordinate the best policy for accomplishing our goals. Ultimately, we might need to employ our own AI in order to properly interpret the uh, alien AI. Uh, the experience will be as humbling as relying on our kids to make sense of new content on the internet by admitting that their computers 
and their skills exceed ours. Uh, the quality of expertise and AI might be more important than physical strength or natural intelligence in determining the outcome of a technolo technological battlefield. Being the smartest species on Earth, well, in our own opinion, uh, our fate has been under our control so far. This may not hold to be true after our encounter with extraterrestrial AI systems. Hence, technological maturity obtains a sense of urgency for Darwinian survival and the global competition of Milky Way civilizations, unquote. Uh, so basically saying we better focus on technology, artificial intelligence, because we might need it to interpret other artificial intelligence, which is more than likely what we're going to come across. I would think, uh, unless there's creatures that can live thousands of years, which isn't, you know, doesn't really, doesn't really uh, say that it can't exist. You know, we just, we're locked into our own uh, perception of the, the, the universe because of what we experience here on Earth, but we really have no idea what could be out there. There could be creatures that could live, you know, forever. Millions of years, trillions of years, billions of years. We just have no concept of that because we're stuck on this little rock floating around our sun. Uh, Loeb also suggests that our artificial intelligence systems are beginning to be more intelligent uh, even than we are, which is a critical step. It's also the tipping point of uh, civilization. And they're going to take over. Maybe they'll make us the batteries. Um but it's likely we're still in our infancy, to be honest, with developing such systems. Although we've come quite far in the last few decades, it's, uh, it's enough to match wits or at least not get us blown up by more intelligent systems, hopefully. And my hope is that we won't have to, to wait uh, too soon to, uh, to interact with something like that. Let's hope. Um, let's face it, Earthlings, we need help. Uh, we're we're dying of uh, diseases. Uh, it's only a matter of time, and people have feared things like this, uh, such as COVID nineteen. And luckily, uh, this wasn't a bad virus. You know, it could have been a lot worse. Could have had a, a much higher infection rate, a much higher mortality rate than what it did. We got lucky. We dodged a bullet. And to be honest with you, uh, we survived the eighties threat of nuclear warfare, nuclear fallout, nuclear winters. I guess nuclear summers, too. It'd be nuclear all year round, wouldn't it be? Instead of just winter? Um, you know, we got a taste of that with Chernobyl. Uh, who knows? You know, we've been lucky. Cuban Missile Crisis. We're dodging bullets all the time, and eventually, we may not dodge it. We might blow ourselves up. We need some help. You know, maybe our neighbors can come over here and talk some sense into us. Yeah, the Spanish flu. Can you imagine if the Spanish flu were to hit now and people were like, no, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not getting a shot. Are you crazy? I'm not going to put some, I'm not going to change my DNA. You're not going to put a chip in me. Get out of here. I'm not going to save my family. I don't care. I'm selfish. Um, yeah, we've dodged bullets. And hopefully, uh, you know, the world... Our world would become a little smaller, and maybe maybe it's the kind of kick in the in the pants that we need here on Earth to find out that we're not alone, that there's other things out there, and we better get our stuff together uh, quickly.
And I think that perspective could help us as well. Uh, last story tonight. Uh, again, on the UAP report, back to the UAP report, which was released to the public back on June 25th. We're all excited. And then we read it. And we're like, wait, what? Nine pages? That's it? I think a lot of us expected a, a lot more content than that. Uh, so after that release of the report, the question was, a lot of us had in the back of our mind, is there more to this? What are we seeing? Are we just seeing the synopsis? Are we missing out on all these details? Is there a classified version of the report? How big would it be? And it didn't help that officials declined to answer the question uh, when it was asked. And speculation, of course, ran rampant. And many people were making their own guesses as to how big this report was. And people were guessing anywhere from uh, 70 to 400 pages in length, uh, which is kind of what I would think. I would think about 200. You know, if you're going to list all these reports and all the data, uh, any kind of uh, witness statements, granted, you probably wouldn't iron that all out, I guess. You'd, you'd have to refer to other documents because that's what they do uh, to continue that hierarchy of information levels. So people can never put everything together. That's just how the government, it's Kurt, what is it, uh, compartmentalization. So each level has access to information so that nobody really at any level can put everything together. Uh, so everything is ambiguous. That's that's the, the methodology. Uh, John Greenwald, author and podcaster who also operates the website The Black Vault, I'm sure we're all pretty all perfectly familiar with. Uh, he tweeted out last Thursday that he confirmed the actual length of the classified version of the UAP report. Uh, the original report, like I said, is nine pages long. And pretty much you have the title page. Uh, what is it? Uh, resources at the end. It's pretty much a lot of it's just a waste of space. Kind of repeats itself a little bit. Uh, so it's really only like five pages long when you break it down. Um, a lot of it just takes up unnecessary space. Uh, and an email from Sally A. Nicholson, a Freedom of Information Act liaison for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, she simply stated that the uh, classified version of the report is a whopping, a whopping 17 pages long. What a letdown. Um, 17 pages. Now, I wonder what we're missing in those extra few pages, but um, it's probably nothing uh, too exciting. Uh, it's probably even more of a letdown than what we've already read, but uh, who knows? Again, this is on a small sample size of things. We can only think about what comes next, what happens down the road, what happens when uh, groups of sightings happen now. Uh, granted, we'll never hear about it if it's something that is uh, involving uh, known governments. Granted, we um, we do hear about the occasional. I think I mentioned it last week. You know, Russia is always invading our airspace in Alaska, and uh, other governments are are peeking in on us around the corners of our uh, of our country constantly. And we probably don't hear about a lot of that because national security, uh, but. So I wonder why we hear about all these UAP reports, but hopefully we'll see some more stuff coming out soon and uh, we'll be able to talk about it here.
and hopefully we'll make some headway and uh, who knows maybe some uh, major milestones coming as far as contact with UAPs or really uh, getting down to the brass tacks of what's up there in our skies but in the meantime we can dream on uh, and hope for the best but uh, for now i'll see you next week keep your eyes in the skies your ears in the woods the hair standing on the back of your neck and always keep your mind slightly ajar don't let your brains fall out and don't close your mind to other possibilities you know the other side's not always wrong keep your mind open above all else don't stop believing. For the Paranormal News Insider, this is Dr. Brian D. Parsons reporting. <laughs>